in the middle of recording. When I was a kid, we did a podcast by um, scraping rocks and just like, <laughs> yeah. So was that like Tuesday? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. Hey, everyone. Before we get started with this episode, we have a bit of an announcement for you. For the first time in the illustrious history of this podcast, Supa has a sponsor. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are now kept on the air and in your earbuds by none other than Twisted Spoke CBD. Based right here in Colorado Springs, Twisted Spoke, with their topicals, tinctures, and sports nutrition, were with us for episode 20 of season 1, you can find that episode in the back catalog, and you might say they're now a part of every episode going forward. This is the part of the ad where, as a host, I'm supposed to say that I use their product, and I do. At Supa, we are fans of stupidly long bike rides, and that means chamois cream. I started using Twisted Spoke's insanely good chamois cream a year ago, and it has been my go-to for every long ride ever since. Whether you are already using CBD-infused products or have thought about giving them a try, check out Twisted Spoke. You can find them in shops throughout the Pikes Peak region and beyond or at TwistedSpokeCBD.com. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Blanket Fort. Here in the studio this evening, unexpectedly, we have Joseph Wintergerst. Josh. Tell us about today's victim. Yes, yes, a local legend here in Colorado Springs. And one of the most genuine humans that uh, you can come into contact with. Absolutely. Uh, and a dear friend. Joseph, friend of the show, known for his exploits in mountain biking, known for his disasters in some circles, and known to some as a member of the winning Super Race team when we destroyed all competition at the Sunrise to Sunset in 2021 yes yes all competition who were in our category no one needs to know no No one one needs to know know. it's not printed on the medal josh yeah we won we We won won. yeah we won and we won with joseph joseph welcome to the show thank you thanks for having me guys it's an honor it's a listen to your podcast and it's it's really really fun to be you know a part of this community and just listen to you guys so i'm really happy to be here thanks for having me Oh, the honor is truly ours tonight. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you thank for, you. for will- being willing to uh, do an off-the-cuff interview here. Yeah, it's always exciting. Never never plan anything, just go for it. Yeah, you just kind of go for it. So right. a couple couple little highlights here I just want to throw out there for, for who we're talking with. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is a man who started riding, was it 2013? 14. Um, I learned how to ride a bike in 2014. 14, and then proceeded to the next year win the Cat 3 State Championship. Yes, in 2015. And then uh, you just went on, you kept riding a bike. You did some high school stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, then you placed second at XC Nationals in 2019. That would be Nationals. Five years after you first threw a leg over a bike. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> okay, well, I've been riding a bike a lot longer than five years and have not placed second at anything remotely approaching Nationals. I'd say there's some natural talent there. I think so. It might also be your just genuine charisma in life. It just transfers to the writing. <laughs> Energetic, yeah. positive life force. Yes. Thank you. There's only one way to live life. So, you know. Ah, I love it. Well, I would love to hear, where did you come from? 
How did you find yourself on a bike one day? Ah, oof. <laughs> Those are two questions. Let's start uh, with yeah, the first yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and I believe it's around year old, maybe two years old. Um, under my decision, we moved to Mexico City. Oh. Or, well, Mexico, I guess. Yeah, we were in Mexico City, I believe, for a little bit. And I was there from 99 or 2000 to like 2000 all the way to 2015, I believe. And in 2014, I learned how to ride a bike. And my dad had kept like moving in and out of the U.S. back and forth. And he one day came, well, he came home. He found a job and he told me, like, hey, I'm going to move back to the U.S. in 2015 at like some point. Uh, he had just gotten like two offers and he was debating between them. And I told him, like, well, I'm going to go with you. He's like, no, you can't go with me. Like, you're in high school. You're, you know, it was my, well, in Mexico, grades work a little bit different. But basically, it was like a sophomore year in high school over here. And I was like, no, I'm going to go with you. This is the opportunity. Like, in college, it's going to be a lot harder. And afterwards, it's going to be even worse. So if I'm going to do it, it's going to be today. And he's like, okay. So we looked at two places. And it was California or, or Colorado. And I was like, well, I mean, I've never heard of Colorado. But I know California. So we're going to go there. And he's like, you should probably give Colorado a chance. And I was like, okay, I could do that. But I mean, I don't know if I'm really going to like it. And, and the reason I wanted to come to the U.S. was because of mountain biking, because I had just learned how to ride a bike. Um, I mean, it was a little under a year before, I believe. And I had only done like one or two or three races in Mexico. And I was like, well, um, if we go, I, I would love to like keep this career. Like, I think that's the reason I would go, because I want to pursue this career. And he's like, yeah, you should definitely check out Colorado. So we, that was like, I don't know, let's say a Monday. On a Monday, he told me he was going to move. And on a Thursday, we were sleeping in an apartment in Colorado Springs on the floor with just towels. No Nothing way. else. It was in, yeah, we took a bus. And then in Austin, I believe it was Austin, Texas, one of our friends picked us up, dropped us off a car. And then we kept driving all the way back um, or all the way to Colorado Springs. And that Thursday, I remember sleeping on the floor. Like I had just left school. Um, I was a huge introvert. I would not talk to anyone. I would get really nervous, like almost throwing up school trips anything like i would show up in the morning for a school trip and i would bail i was like mom i can't do this like i i just can't do this and i would bail and my my parents were always like so sad because i couldn't socialize i didn't have social media um i didn't party i didn't hang out with people and they're like, my mom made me a facebook and she's like you're gonna socialize and i was like no i'm not <laughs> and i just kept it that way for for forever and then when i moved here um i didn't know english my parents had been talking to me well my dad talks to me in english all the time um, and same back then, but um, I really didn't know English. Well, that I realized that once I got here, because in Mexico, I was like, yeah, I definitely know English. I mean, I'm really good at this. And then I got humbled really hard when I moved here. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to open up. I'm going to have to understand, you know, the culture, the people, learn a little bit about the language and well, learn the language itself. And and so I had to step out of my comfort zone a lot and, and just go on my own and explore, you know, Colorado Springs, join the high school team. The reason... We moved specifically to Colorado Springs in the area that we were was because um, the high school team or the high school that I went to was the only high school that had a team, a cycling team that was at least on the website. So we were like, well, if that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to go to that high school because it's the only one that actually had it, you know, published. And, so, and which school was that? Uh, this is Cheyenne Mountain High School. Cheyenne Mountain. Mm -hmm. All right. right. I won't hold it against you too much. <laughs> I got to Air Academy myself, but cross You were rivals. gone by then. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and um i mean i don't know yeah i mean i honestly it's the only school that i that we knew about so that's the reason why we came here but uh, i mean overall i think it was a good experience it, mm -hmm. I, it it's not so much the school it's really the people you hang out with so if you're able to stay in the good side of things 
it's really not a problem to be like, you know, in, in a different place. So you're, you're a sophomore at this point? Yes, correct. 2015 Starting out sophomore. knowing very little English, mm-hmm. just jumping into sophomore year of high school. What mm-hmm. was that like? Um, it was very, well, as an introvert back then, it was very interesting. Um, I struggled a lot with knowing people, uh, communicating. I couldn't ask questions because I didn't know English at that point. And I was very, very nervous. But I think it was really nice to be able to start from zero and not have anyone know me and like no pressure on myself. So that helped a lot with getting out of my comfort zone and really like stepping out of like that introvert side of things and just become a little bit more extroverted. And it was funny because that first year that I was here, I was taking German, but I didn't think about this when I signed up for the class. I had to learn German through English while I was learning English. Excellent. And that was really cool. That would, that would break my brain. <laughs> it broke mine a few times, but uh, <laughs> I think it, it was a great experience because it pushed me both on the English and the German side. So I learned German through a different side because I had mm-hmm. already learned a little bit of German in Mexico. And then I had to look at English in a different way again. So it really helped me remember a lot of the English and, and learn the language because I feel like once you know, I, I know a few languages um, just from experience. And I mean, you know, Spanish is my first language, English mm-hmm. is my second. Um, I, I had like six or seven years of French through high school. And then German, I think I had a year or two years. And I think once you learn a language, it's a lot easier to learn more languages because it's not only learning language, but it's what do you need to look for to learn that language and understand how languages work. Oh, it's a fascinating process. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And now I'm trying to learn sign language, which is a completely different thing, Ooh, but it's really yeah. interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. I've heard that once you learn a few languages, your brain, like that part of your brain grows and is much more adaptable. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I haven't verified this, but it sounds cool. It, it definitely <laughs> is more adaptable. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot easier to learn a language once you understand how it works. Mm. I can definitely vouch for that as far as I've gotten in Spanish and Portuguese, which is finding the bathroom and getting a beer. It's about all I got. So, That's all you need to know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Those two work together, it turns out. I yeah. find that the toilet is kind of universal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if just not, there are hand signals. Cross your legs and shake a little bit and you're good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So we've got you here. Did you start riding immediately? Like once you were here, did you get on the cycling team right away or was there a little bit of lag there? Uh, There's a bit of of lag for sure. The um, education system in Mexico is very different to the education system here. And we were having trouble with transferring all my credits. So as a sophomore over there, um, I was already taking calculus and a few classes like that. But when I moved here, there was nothing that I could transfer directly because over here, you have like calculus one, calculus two, pre-calc, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, as a class where over there we had one teacher for all the classes and you kind of just progressed with the class. Like you move with the people around and you're all progressing together. So when I got here, I had a bit of a, a gap time, I would say, in between starting school and moving here. And I had brought my bike. The I left every single thing I owned in Mexico except for a few clothes and my only bike. That's all the stuff I brought and started Whoa. from zero. So And what first, was that bike? That was a, oh, I can't remember the year, maybe a 2014, 2015 Ridley A29, I believe. It was a full aluminum hardtail with a broken 120 millimeter fork, a 29, <laughs> no dropper post. And I still have that bike. I, it's the bike that I kept just so people could go riding with me whenever they, they didn't have a bike. That's awesome. Mm. What kind of broken? Like it didn't go down? <laughs> yeah, it didn't go down. So no matter how much, if it's an error... But it also has a physical like spring mm-hmm. spring on it. Yeah. And it's, 
if I dropped it down to like 20 PSI, I still wouldn't bottom it out. So <laughs> it was a very, very rough fork. But right, that's not me, factory that was, spec, no. <laughs> that's not factory spec. That was probably my fault, honestly, because I didn't know much about bikes back then. But um, yeah, that's what I had. And like from day one, I started riding bikes. And I remember I didn't have a functioning phone because I had never actually owned like a fun phone. I had just like a brick back in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And then when I came here, it didn't work. So I just went riding one day and got lost. I remember going to Red Rocks. Now I know it's Red Rocks. But back in the day, I just went to Red Rocks, got lost for hours. And I wasn't even worried because I was like, I mean, it's the US, you know, it's not to talk bad about Mexico, but it's definitely a little bit safer here. And yeah. I love Mexico, but I was a lot calmer here, just being able to explore. And I remember getting late and I was just like, well, my dad has no idea where I'm at. That's probably the only thing I'm worried about, but I will get home. And I found my way back home with no GPS or anything and had like the most amazing time of my life. And that's when I knew I had done the right decision. Mm -hmm. That is fantastic. And the rest of your family joined you at some point as well, right? Correct. Yeah, so my dad and I moved in 2015. I believe it was it was very close to spring break, I think. And my sister was still in college in Mexico. So we knew that it would have been really hard for her to move over. And my mom stayed with my sister in Mexico just to make sure she was okay while, while she finished college. And the Mexican culture is very different where like the family stays together until the kids get married and then they move out. So that's that's very was one of the biggest cultural shocks that I had when I moved here was that a lot of people were already on their own through high school. Uh, so my sister and my mom were still together back back in Mexico and my dad and I were over here and my mom and my sister I believe joined us in 2016 late 2016 maybe it was it was probably over a year before they came over so it was yeah we had to separate for a little bit and that was really hard but uh, I, it was definitely worth it now we have a, a better lifestyle overall we're a lot happier um, a lot more freedom and and I mean Mexico was great but we were struggling a lot financially and and with other things so it's it's really nice to have a restart yeah yeah well you you certainly got plugged in yourself in the cycling world quite quickly and through through the high school cycling leagues but also mm -hmm. uh just getting connected with various riders in the springs i mean i i really met you through usa cycling talent id camp mm -hmm. and you you did that camp as a rider and then a coach is that mm -hmm. right correct I believe I was there four or five years total at the camp. Mm -hmm. I went as a rider for two years and then I came back as a volunteer and then as a coach one or two more years. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you continued to progress through cycling. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talk about that. Like we usually ask anybody who, any of the guests that we've had on the show who have really hit a level of proficiency that most of us will never achieve. The question that I always have is, you know, at what point in there did you realize, hey, wait a minute, this is going somewhere. Like, you're not just maybe winning one race here or there. You're actually like, you're at the front of the pack every time. When did, when did you look around and realize that this is going to work? Oh, that's Honestly, that's a hard question for me to answer because I had a lot of really great experiences. And I think the reason why I wanted to pursue it was because of the fun rides that I was having. Mm. So when I joined the high school team, um, at that point, I... I don't believe I'd raced the first year, 2015. No, I did race the first year, but I joined it early in the year and I was riding with one of the riders there. And he was one of the first people that I met in the US. And he took me on a few rides and I just had like the most amazing time of my life. And I was keeping up with him. He made some comments of how good I was and like the skills. And I mean, it could have been just because he was being really nice, but it was definitely something that, you know, clicked in my head and, and just motivated me, to, motivated me to keep going. And that's when, when I was like, well, I would love to pursue this. And if I can at a competitive level, it would be a lot better. 
So then I, I started training for fun so I could do longer rides and I could go explore more. And then I joined the Bear Creek series, I believe, one of those old older series here in the Springs. And I showed up as a Cat 3. I didn't know what cats were, like Cat 3, Cat 2, Cat 1. And I just knew Cat 3 was slow. Well, I mean, slow compared to <laughs> 1 and 2, you know. They're pretty yeah, quick yeah. kids, but um, definitely where I had to start. So I was like, okay, let's do that. And I, I signed up and I was all the way at the back. And I mean, at that point, I was still a little shy. And my dad was like, no, go to the, fr- go to the front row. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to stay in the back. Like, these kids know what they're doing. Like, I, I don't know anything. And he's like, no, go to the front. And I was like, hey, if it's meant to be, I'll be at the front in like a few seconds, hopefully. And so, yeah, the race started. And like before the first turn, I was leading the race. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. And I ended up winning, <laughs> I think, every single Cat 3 race from that series. And that's when I was like, okay, maybe I do have something in me. You know, I, I'm going to pursue this a little bit more competitively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when it, it probably clicked. And I, I've always doubted myself in a way. Um, I, I don't think I've ever been like super confident in myself in a lot of things. But that was one of the things where I was like, I, I think I could do this if I really push myself. And I started training more and more and more. And, and yeah, I eventually just had some great results. And I mean, a lot of things to Daniel, honestly. Daniel Matheny, he was my coach for a few years and still a great friend. And I hope I get to work with him again once, you know, we get back mm-hmm. to things. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's probably the reason that I really, really got into it. And, and he's the one that made me realize how much more potential I had. Mm. Mm-hmm. He's good at that. He's very good at that. <laughs> yes, he yes. is. Yes. So anybody who knows you now is probably having a hard time picturing you as a silent, quiet, shy person of any kind. <laughs> yeah. I agree. That's a really great point. What, mm-hmm. what caused you to come out of your shell, would you say? Um, the biggest thing was definitely learning English. Uh, I knew that I wasn't going to learn if I didn't put myself out there. There's really, well, that's one of the th- things where you have to put yourself out there to learn. Languages, you can't really learn them in a classroom setting, in my opinion. There's only so much you can learn in that way. Uh, but if you put yourself out there in the culture and talk to the people, it's a lot easier to learn. Uh, and the other one was probably meeting pros. Mm. I remember in 2016, I went to nationals as a Cat 3 in, uh, in Mammoth, California. And I just wanted to meet all the pros. And I was like, I'm going to take pictures with these guys. And, and my mom was like, yeah, or my dad, I guess. I don't remember if my mom was there. I believe she was. But my parents were like super supportive. And they were like, yeah, you should do it. Just go talk to them. And, and I was pretty nervous. But I was like, if I want a picture, I'm going to go like talk to them. And I was like, I can do this. And I remember going to Cam Singh and um, Aaron Gwynn and Kate Courtney, even Russell Finsterold back then. And I was like, oh, yeah, hey, guys. Like, you know, like super awkward. Like I barely knew English. I don't even know if they understood me. But I had my phone. And I was like, can I take a picture with you? And just took a selfie. And, and then I realized it was a lot easier than I you know, was imagining in my head. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that really pushed, pushed my, my, you know, comfort zone. And I was like, I really like this. I like the feeling of talking to people, learning other people's experiences and seeing everyone's point of view and not just like, you know, everything that's going on in my head. So I think that's probably what did it for me. Was it also something to do with the fact that other people could not speak when they were riding with you? <laughs> I think that's just more intervals. <laughs> For anybody who doesn't know who is listening to this show, riding with Joseph is an exercise in listening continuously because what happens is Joseph is ahead of you, does not stop talking, and is riding so fast you can barely breathe. Yeah, that's a good picture. I remember climbing Buckhorn with you at one point, and I was just astounded. I'm like, we are going so fast. I'm setting PRs, and he's still talking. I can't breathe. He's still like, this is amazing. I mean, it took my mind off of the pain. Thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Whenever you need to do it again, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you, you've definitely come out of your shell. 
Absolutely. It's been fun to see. Yeah. Thank you. I, you can actually talk to Daniel. I think Daniel has been the only person that saw me go through both. Mm. He was the first person I contacted when I moved to the U.S. And I was looking for a coach. And I remember seeing he was in the Springs. He was certified. He was very experienced. And he seemed to have a lot of knowledge. And I sent him an email and didn't hear back for weeks or months. And I was like, well, this guy is like really bad at, you know, communicating. <laughs> and, uh, and then I get an email like months later. And he's like, hey, I, um, I just had a baby. And... I didn't respond because when I got your email, like we were in the process of, you know, everything. So I was like, oh, no, it's totally understandable. Don't worry about it. And then we connected and, and he got to see me from when I was a huge introvert all the way to an extrovert. And he, that's one of the things he always mentions, how, how much of a change it has been. Because I feel like most people hear about it, but they don't really realize just how bad my, you know, or how bad I was in that introvert area where I would just have panic attacts and mm -hmm. like almost throw up. They just got like really, really sick. And now I can just go and talk to anyone and be out there and ask questions. And I, I mean, I, I just put myself out there now. So it's a very, very big difference. And I love it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> what, what role would you say that cycling has played in kind of your development over the last uh, six, six, seven years? Ooh. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been... It's been a lot. I think I've I've learned a lot about myself. Um, I think I've pushed my limits a lot. Mentally, I've never thought of myself as like a mentally strong person, but cycling really pushed my limits on that. And whether it was when I attempted the Coco Pelli, that ended really bad and humbled me a lot. I learned a lot from that lesson, but um, it's definitely shown me how much more we can do that we're not aware of. And you can't really learn from it unless you like put yourself out there. And I, well, one, I mean, you know, talking about going back to introvert and extrovert, I, I mean, what, that's one of the biggest things in, in my personal life where I became an extrovert from cycling, really, like it pushed me out there, um, you know, meeting all the pros, talking to people, trying to join teams, getting yourself out there, because, you know, nowadays sponsors and everything, they ask you for, for putting yourself out there and making those media posts and talking to people. And, and so that was one of the reasons um, that really pushed me out there. But also, um, I, I always think of... Or I always try to come up with goals, not just long-term goals. Like, hey, I want to be in the Olympics next time. Or I want to go to Worlds. I want to go to Nationals, State Champion, whatever. Uh, it's really important to have, like, daily goals or hourly goals even or weekly goals, whatever it is, short-term, long-term, mid-term. And with cycling, I, I was able to do that where I joined Shine Mountain as a coach after I graduated. And I was like, well, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm going to go coach. That's going to keep me motivated to go out there. Because, you know, during the winter, during cold days, when you're not feeling like it, you're going to stay home. And then it's a lot easier. The first day you stay home, it's a lot easier to, you know, the second day stay home and it just starts to build up. So true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's when, when I was like coaching, it's going to get me out there. I'm going to have to go out there and like coach. So that's definitely one of the bigger things where I think it has made a really big positive impact in my life because now I'm motivated in a lot of ways before it was like, I had to force myself to get out there. And now I'm like, you know, it's live in the moment. Don't look at like, oh, I'm going to be cold when I'm out there. No, like, what do you want to do here? Like right now, like, do you want to go biking right now? Then go biking and then you worry about the next minute when that minute, or next minute comes over, you know, and, and you just do it. And I think that's one of the things I learned with biking too, where the coaching, the being coached, the putting myself out there in the intervals, in the rain and the snow. And it's a lot of the fun experiences. Like when you imagine it, you don't really look forward to it sometimes if it's cold if it's rainy and if it's going to be a really long ride but when you're in the moment and you really realize what's happening you're out there and like a lot of people might be on their couch just like enjoying a cup of coffee or you know chocolate or whatever 
but you're out there like putting yourself out in a completely different environment than most people want to experience ever. It's a really, really beautiful setting. And it's a privilege. Mm-hmm, it's definitely a privilege. And I love that. And I think that's one of the things I've learned with, with cycling. I've always been a sportsy person and my family is kind of like on the other side. So I don't know where I came from, <laughs> but uh, that's one of the things I learned, like really enjoy the moment and live day by day. Well, some moments are pretty hard to enjoy, such as maybe a couple of moments out on the Cocapelli. <laughs> Talk us through that. I mean, this, I, you've just hinted at this before we hit the air here. I have ridden the Cocapelli. For those who don't know, it's 140-ish miles rambling across the Utah and Colorado desert between Moab and Fruta. This is famous for having been ridden in now less than 12 hours in one shot by crazy people like Lachlan Morton and others who have in fact beat that time now. However, it's also a really great bike pack and many people do it in three to four days. And if you do it at the right time, it could be beautiful and glorious and a wondrous time by yourself or with friends. However, you hinted that maybe you didn't have a wonderful, glorious experience. (laughs) All right, talk us through it. Yeah, so uh, I'm a very spontaneous person now. And I remember I've never been a person to plan ahead a lot, but even more now. So For anybody that bikes pack that bike packs, these are already frightening words, but keep yes, going. <laughs> correct. So that's how my uh, very unfortunate experience in the Coca Philly started. But I probably it was probably like the weekend before and I had never done bike packing. I had the bags because I kinda wanted to get into it, but I had never done it before. And I told my parents, Hey, would you be interested in driving me to Fruta to do the Coca Pelli trail? And they're like, Well, I mean, do you want to like, you know, give it some time? And I was like, I mean, yeah, but it feels like right now I could do it. You know, I'm fit. Um, the weather seems right. There's so many things going right. I was like, I think I should give it a try. And I was very confident in myself at that point. I'm not a very confident person, as I mentioned earlier. But at that point, there was just like, I don't know if someone hyped me up for like a second or they just like said I looked good that day. But <laughs> there was something about it that I was pretty pumped. And so I, I just looked at the map, bought a book uh, for the Cocopelli Trail, looked at like the three-day... Uh, plan itinerary and I was like yeah I think I could do that and so I packed my dad drove me to Fruta and on the way there it started snowing like one of the biggest storms I've ever driven through well my dad was driving but yeah. one of the biggest storms we've ever like driven through and it was pretty bad and so I, I get there and at night we're at, at the hotel just playing for the next day and I was like I don't know if we're gonna be able to do this we're gonna have to have to show up to the the parking lot and see if it's clear you know if it's mm-hmm. if it's not muddy if it's not snowy and we show up and it was probably like 40 or 50 degrees at like 8 a.m. And it was, it was sunny. It was really sunny and it was a little muddy. And I was like, well, that's very interesting, but I'm going to give it a try, you know? And so, yeah, I got on my bike and just started pedaling. And this was my first experience ever, like really backcountry for bikepacking. Mostly I had never spent a night on my bike overnight. Mm-hmm. And so I'm pedaling and going and going. And, and I mean, I just got in the moment and I think it was probably like 50 miles the first day, uh, but this was fully unsupported and I did not do any water drops because I did not plan why, anything. Why would you? I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's the Coca Pelli. It's not the desert. And <laughs> for, for reference, for those who don't know, on the, th- the, the three and four day routes to do the Coca Pelli, you maintain touch with the Colorado River multiple times in your first couple of days, but then there's a long stretch where you don't have any water at all. 
And many people even drive jugs of water out and hide them behind trees in the desert because that climb that precedes this spot where most people drop water is no fun at all. It's something like almost 4,000 feet of climbing up sandy, sandy, ledgy, terrible, awful, horrible Jeep roads. But you, sir, you decided the water was an extra. Correct. Yeah, I was <laughs> okay. like, I mean, who needs water, right? <laughs> Just drink a bottle or two before and you'll be fine. <laughs> no, so, yeah, I mean, it's something I really didn't think about because, I mean, considering I had looked at the river and the map and I knew mm-hmm. the first day it was probably going to be fine. And then the second day, um, I don't know. Do I don't remember know if where it you camped that first my, night? Did you make it past Westwater? It was 50-something miles. I believe okay. I did make it past Westwater. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to double check on that. But, um, yeah, I remember it, it took a while. So it ended up being a lot more technical than I expected. It, it, it was very techy, and it took me 11 hours to do around 50 miles, I believe. Whoa. And this was hike-a-bike hours and, and mm-hmm. pedaling hours. And I didn't take a GPS. I was just following a paper map. And I actually really like it now. <laughs> but uh, back then, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So when did you start to know that maybe this wasn't going to go the way you thought? Definitely the first day. Not the first hour, but maybe like hour seven when... I was looking at my um, at my GPS and just based like looking at distance that I had written, and I looked at my calculations and it said I had around. Let me think. I think it was around 19 miles left, and and I was like, okay, that's not too bad. I could probably do that. But sunrise or sun, sorry, sunset had already set in. So this it was like getting a little dark. You're by computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You had one. Okay. Yeah, correct. And so I'm there like pedaling through, you know, and I stop a little bit and look and it was like 19 miles left. And I was like, okay, it's probably not too bad. So I keep pedaling and around 10 miles left, it was already like pitch black. I yeah. had lights on and everything. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do calculations again just to make sure because I don't see anything close to me. And I was like, I mean, 10 miles is still pretty far, but so I do my calculations, to say, ca- calculations again and it turns out I was wrong and I had, sh- well, I had a shortage of 10 miles. So I was still missing 19 miles when I was at 10. Oh my so when I was at 19 miles, I had like 29 left. So that's when it kicked <laughs> in and I was like, this is going to be a lot worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. And But I did make it to camp super late. Uh, that was really fun, honestly. I was setting up my tent and then some lady came and yelled at me. And she's like, no, I have all my family members coming tonight um, and we have all this reserved. And I was like, what do you mean this is reserved? You can't reserve this. And I was like, you have like so much land here. And you're like taking the one spot where I'm putting like a one person tent and I'm going to wake up at like five in the morning to leave. And yeah, she was really mad. So she kicked me out. So I had to move over to another one and next to an RV that somehow made it there. And it was really funny because I, they released their dog to go to the bathroom and he jumped on my tent, like brand new, super expensive bikepacking oh, tent no. and just started scratching the heck out of it with it, like his nails. And I could just see him like through the tent and I was like, no. And yeah, the owners didn't do anything. Luckily, my tent survived, but uh, the whole night was like that. The dog just like, you know, using my tent for stuff. So that was a very (laughs) interesting night. But uh, the RV people, though, whatever their names were, they were really, really cool people apart from that. And they refilled all my water bottles and fed me breakfast. So that was really nice of them. All right. So they had some trail angels. Yeah. That's good stuff. Mm -hmm. Even if they have a bad dog. All right. So day two, We're, we're, we're back on course. Forget the fact that yesterday was a disaster. We're going to do it right this time. And then what happened? So I, I remember waking up and I was really tired. My legs were definitely tired. I was very motivated though. And, and I was looking forward to just like what looked like it was going to be a beautiful day. And luckily it was a beautiful day. Um, but 
apart from it being a beautiful day, it got over to, I think it was over 105 degrees, which I was not planning on in the middle of the desert. I mean, it, for the season at least, it wasn't supposed to be that hot. And so I kept pedaling. And I remember I finally had service after, I mean, you know, over a day of no service, no talking to anyone. And at this point, I was already a pretty big extrovert. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't go any minute without talking to anyone. So this was a very big <laughs> mental challenge for me. And I didn't have headphones. I wasn't listening to music because I wanted to save some battery. And and then I realized that was probably a bad mistake and just should carry a little bit more something to charge my phone <laughs> and listen to a podcast. But um, yeah, mentally got really hard. Uh, once I realized just how much more I had left to go, uh, mostly in ele- elevation, because you know, the, the second and third days are, mostly the second day is the hardest day in, in elevation gain. And that's when I realized how much more, like how much harder it was going to be than I had imagined, mostly how tired I was at that point. And and I texted my dad and I was like, hey, I'm not sure I'm going to make it, but I can meet you at this point and, and refuel, refuel and we'll go from there. And I just kept pedaling and pedaling and through the desert, through the sand, through the heat and just didn't see anyone for miles and miles and hours. And at this point, like everything was going through my head, you know, like we had been going through some stuff as a family and like it just gets in your head. And if you if you get that wrong thought in your head, it just won't let you go. Mostly when you're in a situation like that. And unfortunately that happened to me and it was just stuck in my head. And by the time I got to my dad, like my mind was just blank. I had nothing left in me, no energy. And I knew that if I keep go- if I kept going, I was probably going to have like a heat stroke in the middle of nowhere, completely alone. And that's when I had to make the decision of bailing. And I remember because my dad... He saw me and he's like, no, you can do this. You can do this. He's really supportive. But I don't think he realized this, the extent of the situation and just how alone it really is out there and how much, I mean, how there's really nothing around there, you know, like Mm -hmm. I feel like people are not, or that don't go out very often into the outdoors or don't put themselves out there. They don't really see the extent of that, you know, danger, I guess. And, and yeah, my dad was like, no, you can definitely do it. Like get back out there, get back out there. And I was just like on like you know, on the edge of crying, just like super, mm-hmm. super hard, like breaking down. And I was like, no, I'm going to hold it. Like, it's all good. And I just told my dad, like, no, let's just, let's just go enjoy you and I, let's go to Moab and just go walk around a little bit. And so that's what we did. I ended up bailing, but it was definitely a learning experience for me and it humbled me a lot, but it taught me how amazing it can really be out there and how challenging it is and how much more we can do that. Like, so now I'm like, I'm always craving experiences like that. Even if I like go through the same thing again, hopefully not. I think I learned my lesson, but mm. next time it'll be planned. I was going to say, you're going to go back to the Coke Pelly, try it again. I think I will. Um, maybe with some friends. Yeah. I don't really have a lot of friends that will do it. Probably. Maybe <laughs> you too. <laughs> well, but I've done it once and I'm itching to do it again. Let's do so. it. I'm down. All right. Uh, let's do it. Mm-hmm. I could probably be convinced. I think so. <laughs> Josh still needs to get out there. I think it's important to recognize. Uh, I just want to shout out your your family your parents like they mm-hmm. have been so supportive i hear so many stories from you about how they have just encouraged you and enabled whatever whatever it takes in order to get you through something so that's mm-hmm. that is powerful i agree yeah they're very supportive um i mean there's something not a lot of people know but we definitely struggled financially and we've had a lot of issues through through life but uh they've always said like you do what you want to do and we will support it and that's one of the things i'm really grateful for i think because even through college, I remember like we couldn't afford college and I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And like, so I was going to have to take a break from college and like drop out basically. We couldn't afford it. And, um, and I was, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. And, and I was like, well, I could do mechanical engineering just cause they offer it here and I don't have to be out of state. I don't have to go stay in a dorm. And I was like, well, I mean, that sounds interesting. Like, I don't really know what it is, but let's do it. And so I went into mechanical engineering and, and 
I remember my parents being like, hey, you don't have to do it. Like, do whatever you want to do. We, we will try to pay for it. We will do as much as we can. And luckily it worked out. But they've been supportive, like, from that to biking to, mm-hmm. you know, like, waking up from my crazy things at five in the morning, driving me to nationals, driving me to all the races. Like, you know, we, we couldn't afford lodging in a lot of places. So, like, for the Winter Park Series, we would wake up at four or five in the morning. My dad would drive me so I could rest in the car, go race, have a super long day. And then my drive, my, my dad would drive me back all the way home and my parents, my sister would be there. My dad would feed me the bottles. I didn't have a team for a while and my dad would feed me the bottles. I remember him carrying a wheel set, a full wheel set around all the time. So in case I fly it, we just swapped the wheel. Um, that was really nice of him just carrying the wheel set, feeding me, preparing me breakfast. Like they've been incredibly supportive. Mm-hmm. That is inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very Such lucky. a gift. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I'm really curious about how your path deviated because you were kind of full bore in the cycling world and pursuing the pro-life and what, what it's going to look like with sponsorships and mm-hmm. getting involved in a higher level. And how did that change for you? Because that's not quite where you are right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, I was definitely all in in the cycling community and the cycling world and the competitions, racing. Um, I had put, you know, hours of training. I, I was a full-time student in college and I was training 20, 25 hours a week. Um, that included, you know, weight training and racing and, you know, super long rides, things like that. And in 2018, I remember I couldn't afford paying for a coach anymore. That's when I was kind of debating, like, not going to college. Um, you know, what, I mean, there was a lot going on. I remember... I was going to quit biking at that point and I was going to sell my bike. I was going to, you know, use that money to pay for rent, things like that. And my parents were like, no, don't do it. Like, don't do it. Don't do it. But I, I was very depressed at that point. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, I'm just not motivated anymore. And then someone um, convinced me to keep going. And they, I remember they signed me up for two series, two full series. I had never raced pro before. And she said, hey, check your email. And I checked my email and it was a season pass for two series in pro. Like, no question asked. She just signed me up. And I was incredibly grateful for that. And she pushed me to be where I was that time uh, in a much better mental state, a uh, much better competitive level, a lot more motivated. And yeah, I mean, trained a lot. And in 2019, I didn't have a coach. I trained myself through the whole year and ended up with a second at MTV Nationals in Winter Park. A second place. I was. Um, I think that was a really eye-opening experience for me. That's probably when I noticed that I could really, really do something out of it, like at a professional, professional level, and not just more uh, at the local level. And that was very, very inspiring. I remember finishing. You know, we had gone through a lot. Like my dad had heart surgery. He had, I believe, five bypasses done. Like the year before, there was a lot going on, and um, it was very. I was very depressed, and I remember. <laughs> In 2019, just finishing, like realizing I was in second place after staging, like basically last, I was mm. super far in the back. And I was also, I was, I remember there, like at the starting line, I showed up and there's a picture of me when the, I mean, it's a picture. So a lot of people don't know this, but the con- the countdown was happening. They were like five, four, three. And I look over to the camera and I'm just like sticking my tongue out like, yeah, it's going to be sick. Mm. And there's like two, one, go. <laughs> and uh, that was really funny. <laughs> And yeah, the pictures there and like, not a lot of people know that, but it was, I was just there to have fun. And my, I had uh, a really nice S-Works Epic, a 2016 S-Works Epic, but it had thousands of miles in it. Uh, the fork wasn't working very well because I couldn't afford to service it. So I had never serviced that fork in three years of racing. My brakes were gone. I really didn't have brakes. I remember that. 
uh, a lot of things were wrong with it. And I was very, you know, it was really in my head, like, I'm not going to do good. I'm just going to have fun. I'm not going to do good. I'm just going to have fun. And there was a crash at the first turn on the start lap. And I passed everyone. And I ended up in second or third place. And Mm. I just kept that position. People would catch up with me. And I was like, nope, it's not going to happen. And I would just drop them and drop them and drop them. And I started catching up to first place. But I got stuck behind two people that um, they were having their own race uh, in a different category. And and I just couldn't pass them. Because, I mean, you know, they were in their own thing. They're not going to move over both of them for (laughs) for me to go by. And uh, and yeah, I ended up in second place. And I was very happy. And I remember finishing and just... Like seeing this, the finish line, I was so happy. And then all of a sudden, I just started like crying so hard when I finished. And I hugged my dad and I was like, oh my God, like we did it. And that was very motivational. And um, and then after that, in 2020, I I started training a little bit more. I started racing a little bit more. I didn't do nationals because that was a pandemic. So I believe that's when it got canceled. And that's mm-hmm. why we didn't do it. And then I was volunteering for the Pikes Peak Apex. And mm-hmm. I was... I guess assistant course director Daniel Matheny was course director, and, and I was helping him set up the courses. And this was a very brutal um, job, I would say. Yeah, if you can call it a job, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> it was a lot harder than we expected. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot of writing, and people that are racing don't realize how much harder it is. And that one of the things that I wanted to do was knowing that it was my local trails. I didn't want to race them, but I wanted to support the race so people could enjoy what we had. And that's the reason why I volunteered instead of raced. And we we marked courses overnight. We did Rampart. The Rampart course, we marked it from like 12 to like 3 or 4 in the morning. Right after a super, super long day at Ute Valley. I remember showing up at Ute Valley at 8 in the morning. We left around like 7. Went to get or 7 or 8 p.m. Palmer, right? Uh, Palmer. Apologies. Yeah, yeah. It was Palmer. Yeah, so at Palmer, we showed up at 8 a.m., left around like 7 p.m., went to get some lights, uh, drove up to Rampart. At Rampart, we were there from like 12 to like 3 or 4 in the morning through the night, just like incredibly hard. Lights, you know, we had one wind stopper and we got caught in like freezing cold. And Daniel and I just sat for a second, you know, and, and he looked at me. He was like, you know, as much as it sucks right now, this is where the memories are made. Mm-hmm. And that really stayed with me because it really is, you know, it's one of those moments where in the moment you, it, it might suck, you know, like we were talking about, but mm-hmm. it's, it's so much more beautiful. And now that I look back at it, I'm like, that was such a great time. Definitely one of the best times that I've had out on a bike. And, and basically we just kept course marking. And then on Sunday, um, it was kind of like the easy day, the last day, but I was supposed to go out and make sure that there was no one in course because the racers were coming in. So I went out, did the, I think I did the second half of, no, the first half of the loop, um, maybe like an hour before the race, just taking time to fix everything, make sure it was clear. And as I'm coming down upper jacks, I stopped by to talk to a hiker and I was like, hey, just so you know, you know, there's a race coming in in a few minutes. And they were like, oh yeah, I, I know. I'm just here to cheer. And I was like, well, that's perfect. And and I hit that little drop on upper jacks right as you were getting to the top of um, high drive and like very, very slow. And I just hear, you know, someone driving a motorcycle. And that's when I knew it was all going to go down. <laughs> and yeah, right as, as I landed, I dropped a dirt bike and I collided like tire to tire straight on. Mm-hmm. Um, I went over the bars, my chest hit his headlight and my head hit his chest protector. And I fell to the side. There's like a slight cliff. Luckily, it's not like a wall, but it's very mm-hmm. slanted. And I started sliding down until I hit a, a downed tree. So I got stuck in between the tree and the floor or the, the tree and the ground and the dirt biker got off and he grabbed my arm, like pulled me out and he's like, oh my God, are you okay? And I was like, surprisingly, I think I'm good, you know? And and I was like, mentally, I was not there. I was just kind of like, 
I definitely had a concussion. I was feeling a little dizzy, um, but I was like, well, I think I'm good. You know, I can walk, I can stretch, I can do everything. And as I get up to my bike, uh, I had an RS1, a Rockchuck RS1, and it was snapped in half, still together, but snapped in half. And my entire frame, <clears throat> my entire frame was cracked. My front brake line was cut in half and can't remember what else. But um, it was basically destroyed. It was totaled. Um, a very nice bike that I had had for a while. Yeah, that frame was messed up. Yeah, that frame was pretty bad. Josh and I both saw it that day. And that was, the bike was done. Yeah, it was. It had a good time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, so that's what happened. And uh, and at that point, I didn't know what to do. And as soon as I saw my bike, I I honestly just like broke down. Like I, the first thoughts that went through my head were like, I can't replace this. Like I can't afford to replace it. Uh, I'm not going to be able to race again, you know, like all the negativity just goes through your head. And I grabbed the bike and I told the third biker, just like, you know what, before anything happens, because I was coming in slow, but these kids are not going to be coming in slow. I was like, get to where you need to, because he was there as a volunteer and he was just running 45 minutes late. So he shouldn't have been there, but he was there. And and I have it on GPS. I have the time, the exact time that it happened and everything. And you can see my speed to zero, just like hitting a wall, straight on a wall. I mean, I'm 125 pounds. And my bike was like 22 pounds. And then, I mean, you know, a dirt bike is like more Wait, than myself. Yeah, like yeah the bike weighs more than you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was like hitting a wall. And uh, and I just hiked down, hiked down high drive, which is like a mile of like, you know, a little steep, loose gravel. And then I didn't get on my bike, but I put a foot on one of the pedals just to see if I could coast down it. And my fork just like fully snaps. And I was like, nope, I'm walking. <laughs> so I walked like maybe like three miles, maybe a little bit more to get back to the venue. And uh, yeah, I went to the medics, they checked me out and they were like, no, you're fine. And I was like, I mean, I f luckily I feel good except for the concussion. Um, and I remember uh, one of the SRAM, I guess, technicians or mechanics, or I think he was a, a design engineer actually, because he, he said that he worked on the RS1 and he came and he's like, you know, in all these years of testing the RS1, we never broke a fork like that. And this is the first time we see something like that. And that, that really shocked me because that's when I realized how bad of an impact it really was. And I mean, it's an RS1, you know, it's not an, it's a trail fork technically, and it's a very, very stiff fork in the forward direction. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, the whole crown mm -hmm. was just snapped completely. Yeah. yeah. Completely wow. snapped. The one stiffest of, part. <laughs> yeah. The stiffest <laughs> part actually. And yeah, the, the, one of the spacers, the carbon spacers had the headset got like chewed into the other spacers and it, it was pretty bad. It was, it was yeah. definitely a very shocking experience. And I, I, I mean, everything was handled, um, unfortunately the way I, I wouldn't have liked it to be handled, mm. um, not to go into much detail, but I think my, I, I would say I don't have PTSD from the crash as I, as much as I have PTSD from how it was handled, mm. just being in the situation that I was in with no help or support, uh, that was definitely very shocking and something that I didn't expect. But, um, luckily people came over and amazing, amazing people. Like the community was just insane. My sister made a GoFundMe mm -hmm. and we were able to to just make enough funds to replace my bike. And that was all from the community. And I owe them just like a huge, a huge, like, you know, I don't even know what to say, but it was, it was very, very shocking. And it was insane. And like, you know, we had famous YouTubers, a single track sampler, a lot of people just like donating and leaving beautiful messages and sending me messages. Everyone was sharing my posts. I kept seeing it everywhere. And unfortunately, but I guess luckily for, for the past or I guess after the crash for the next like year or two years, I was known as like the dirt bike crash guy. So wherever <laughs> I went, if it was someone I didn't know, they'd be like, are you the guy that got hit by a dirt bike? 
And I had to be like, yeah, that was me. Yeah. But at a certain point, I was like, I don't know. Because, <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was definitely in a really, like, dark zone after that. Yeah, I got depressed. Mm-hmm. It was amazing to see the community come together around mm-hmm. that, though. I mean, it was, it was one of the first, uh, I mean, I, I knew you already going mm-hmm. into this, and I knew that was, that was huge for you. I mean, mm-hmm. that, your bike was real nice. <laughs> it was. <laughs> It was going to be tough to replace, but seeing people come together to support you in that way was, uh, it was powerful. I, I was so encouraged mm-hmm. by our local, our local biking community. Yeah. yeah. But often replacing the equipment is not all that is required to get somebody back up and on the trail after an incident like that. Mm-hmm. There can be, as you've hinted, it's a whole different mental game. It's not just lost miles or lost days on the bike. Mm-hmm. So what did that event do in terms of your trajectory with cycling and where things have gone since? Yeah, um, I would probably say I put a screw back in my head <laughs> rather than I lost a screw. <laughs> um, I realized a lot of things. <clears throat> and I think one of the bigger ones was I had to refocus my, my life. And I was putting too much time into biking in a way that I think became a little bit toxic. Um, like I was spending a lot of time on social media. Um, I became addicted to it and I was trying to, you know, um, put things out there that people would like and, and try to um, maybe become someone that I wasn't and like trying to show only the best parts of me. And which, I mean, unfortunately, I think that social media tends to be like that, you know, people are just putting the best of them out there. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of people struggle with depression and they're addicted to social media because they're looking at it and they're like, oh my God, I want to be like that. But they don't know, like, that was me. And I was, I was depressed. I was struggling a lot. But I was still looking at it like, oh, my God, I wish, you know, I could be where they are. And that's why I was posting the best of me, even if it, it was a little fake. And that's when I realized, like, well, I definitely have to, you know, cut social media. I have to rethink my friends, you know, like, because I had good friends, but I wasn't putting in enough time into them. And I was cutting them off a little bit. And I was like, well, I'm, de- I'm going to have to spend more time with my friends. And they would hang out and I was like, no, I have to train. I can't do this. Which, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of the commitments that you unfortunately have to make. Uh, you can't always, you know, be out there if you have to train and put the hours in. But uh, mentally, it it's not safe to do that. It's not healthy to do that. So I was like, I'm going to have to rethink the way, I mean, everything. <laughs> so I, I stopped using social media. I made my Strava private. I, I mean, and, and that's probably like for someone that's not a cyclist or an athlete, that's probably like, oh my God, you made your Strava private. Like, but yeah, I mean, it was one of it's those. It's a big where, deal. Yeah, it's a big yeah. deal. And, and yeah, I mean, I was very depressed and some stuff was going on at school that also didn't help and made it a lot worse. And then I had a three month concussion. So I couldn't bike, I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't really like do a lot. And so uh, one of my friends reached out and he offered me a job. And so I was working customer service online, which was probably a really bad idea. Working in a basement, customer service with a concussion and depressed. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think that that is recommended by the FDA. <laughs> no, it probably isn't. <laughs> but uh, I bet you were great at it, though. Yeah, I, I think I was good. It, it, yeah, I mean, as an extrovert now, I think I had a lot of fun with it. I, you know, I was very knowledgeable at bikes at that point, And it was really fun to be able to help people. I, I think I strive by helping people. That's really what makes me happy, just putting myself out there and, you know, doing it for others. So working customer service at a bike company, it was really cool. And I really, really enjoyed it. But, um, you know, there, every now and then there's a customer that's very entitled or they're not very happy with what they have and they will take it out on us. 
And and yeah, so that was a little a little rough, mostly working in a basement. And I was working, you know, 40, 50 hours during college. So at this point I was still in college, it was my last semester. And I was full-time student um, and uh, working 40, 50 hours as customer service. So that was really rough. Did you sleep? I slept a little bit. Yeah, I would sleep like five <laughs> or six hours probably, wake up super early, go do that, do homework, everything. I remember my graduation uh, was online because of the pandemic. And I couldn't get the day off. They didn't give me the day off. And I told them, hey, it's my graduation. I haven't taken a single day off in nine months. Can I please take it? And they're like, nope. So I didn't take the day off. And so my graduation was online. And I remember I'm just like, there's a picture of me just chatting with customers online. And my computer just on the left, my personal computer on the left with graduation going on. And uh, and there, yeah, and, and like as soon as they said my name, I just like looked over, smiled, and then like kept working. <laughs> and oh I was just gosh. like, whoa, congrats. You know, you just worked four years for like that moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I think the biggest thing for me was, um, spending time with family and friends. And one of the things that I actually had never thought about was I'm very energized. You know, as you, as you say, I never shut up and I never <laughs> stop doing things. I'm always, you know, I always have to be doing th something. And it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I can also be a little bad because I, I tend to take things like super fast. I don't really slow down to process anything or like take it all in. And that's when I noticed just like on my own through some digging, I was like, you know, what? I should probably try meditating. And and I was like, I don't know if I can do that. Like I, I can watch a movie, but like for like five <laughs> minutes, <laughs> I don't know if I can really do a lot. So one day I sat down and I tried meditating and it was like five minutes and I was like, oh, I need a break. So I, I went and like did stuff. And then I came back like a different day. And then like I did like 10 minutes and then I started doing more and more. And I realized that it was really helping me a lot. Like I was a lot happier, um, a lot less stressed. I could focus on the bike again. I was struggling with, you know, I mean, just coming back from a really bad crash. I couldn't focus on the bike. I had trouble with skills and just focusing in terms of like not being stiff, really taking the lines, letting the bike flow. And that's when meditating, like, it, like I remember the first time I really meditated, I went bike, uh, I went on a bike right afterwards and just like, completely changed the way I rode a bike. Just, I was so flowy. I was getting personal records on downhills after like a really bad crash. Like I started sending huge drops, insanely steep trails. And I was like, wow, like, you know, like I'm a lot more aware of what I'm doing and, and I really appreciate the moments a lot more. I think that's probably one of the things where with the crash, um, I realized that I was, you know, not as happy as I probably could have been regarding like the whole sponsorship pressure all the peer pressure, all the kids that I was coaching um, through the high school team, you know, they had all these expectations on me from, you know, knowing that I was fast, but I couldn't always perform. So I was scared to not perform on the day when I went to coach. And and the crash really was like a reset, you know, like I was saying, resets are really nice. And unfortunately, sometimes not in the best way like this one, but I came out of it a lot stronger. And I, I noticed that I wasn't as happy as I could have been. And that's why I just completely like started from zero. So like I barely use social media now. I deleted my apps for for a while, like for months. I didn't use them. I recently got back to it just from just other stuff that I have to do. But um, it, it has been a really nice break. And just I've, I've been able to focus my mind to a different place. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> that is awesome. Thank you. Well, I, I want to make sure you know that Anytime I run into a kid that you've, you've worked with, I'm like, oh, you know, Joseph, they're just so excited. They're like, oh, he's the most encouraging person ever. Just your, your attitude, joyful, it's positive, And you have an ability to just bring people up, draw <laughs> them you. out. So mm -hmm. don't, don't forget that. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. It is a true inborn trait you have. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It means a lot. Well, mm -hmm. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I would love to hear a couple of our traditional questions here. Oh, and yeah. if you've listened, you should know at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe. So how about the uh, best day, worst day on the bike? I think we might have heard. We might have yeah, heard. We got a couple of candidates for worst, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the worst is definitely the, the crash. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that changed my entire, like, it just rerouted my life completely in a way that I did not expect. I, I could have never seen coming. Um, I am a really big believer in things happen for a reason. So out of that, I learned a lot. And I, I was actually very grateful that I, you know, came back stronger. And now I'm in a great position. Like, I'm the... I'm the Colorado High School Cycling League photographer now. And that came from that because now I had time to do things. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity. So now I came back to the community. I really had to give back. So now I'm the photographer for the Colorado High School Cycling Cycling League. And I really, really like that. You're doing a great job with it too. Yeah. Thank you. That's good work over there. <laughs> Appreciate it. And and yeah, it's definitely my, my worst day. My best day, I would probably say, is 2019 Nationals because... I had put so much time and effort into it and I had always seen myself as someone that didn't have the resources that others had. And I think that's one of the things that, I mean, I was talking to a few, a few kids recently and they were talking about how they were worried that they wouldn't be able to perform as much as someone that had been, you know, born on a bike basically. And they were like, well, I just started riding. I don't know if I'm going to be able to race against these kids that have always been on a bike. And I was like, you know what, like it, it's a lot, it's very hard mentally because you know, you, you're comparing yourself to like people that are just natural like writers or they just the amount of hours that they have put in you're never going to put that you're never going to you know you can work harder today but the total number of hours might not be there but that doesn't mean you can't be better and it's really how bad you want it how passionate you're about it how much you like it and that's one of the things where i learned a lot from all those days of training and hard work and struggling to like replace a component and i mean i was racing a one by 11 when everyone already had eagle access and my brakes were like, you know, they didn't work and my suspension was really old and I had worn out tires with like thousands of miles on it at nationals where like everyone shows up with like a new bike because it's, you know, mm -hmm. the most important year or mm -hmm. event of the year. And, uh, and it all came together, like when I crossed the finish line. And I think that's why I just broke down crying because I had realized that it really is doable, no matter like how hard or how much you struggle, you can always achieve something if you're like really passionate about it and you really want it. Mm-hmm. Definitely the best day. Yeah, inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, that's such a great place to leave it. I don't want to. I don't know where else we get in, but I, you know, I'm gonna ask just because we could have left it there. Would have been great, but I do want to know because you might have something up your sleeve that we haven't heard about. Strange encounters on the bike Ooh. besides motorcycles. Besides motorcycles. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I mentioned the motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I, yeah, it definitely has, has spent a lot of time. There's some that I probably shouldn't mention on here, but, um, there was one where, well, I've, I've run into bears. Okay. I've run into have, bears but, a but lot. But have you actually Multiple? hit a bear? Because no. Kip Bice has. Oh, so he's, the, she's told uh, me. Yeah. The, the bear bar is pretty high here at Supa. <laughs> no, I, I've never hit a bear. I've run into a lot of them. Um, I, I absolutely love bears. I'm not scared by them. Every time I run into a bear, I'm like, oh my God, it's a bear. I love it. Like, please, like, come look at me. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, everyone's like, you're crazy. And I'm Do like- Do you want to snuggle I mean, it? I don't know. I, I would totally hug a bear if I could. Even like a lion. I love cats. I could totally hug a lion or a tiger. I, I hugged a tiger. Know. It kind of feels like petting a cow. 
Uh, okay, okay. I don't know if I would recommend this course of action. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's only one way to know if it works. <laughs> it might work once. That's the engineer talking right there. There's only one way. Test and verify. That's true. Um, man, strange encounters. I've seen a lot of things you wish you haven't seen. I don't. I probably shouldn't mention them here, though. Is this riding down the Santa I mean, Fe Trail, perhaps? Could, yeah. No, it's probably worse. I have seen, like, on the Santa Fe Trail, uh, like, that's the way I took to get here today. And yeah, there was a guy with like a blanket just like screaming and like just like side to side. But there's a guy that's very known by uh, mm. by people on the Santa Fe with uh, like a machete or an axe. And he's always like swinging it left to right. Mm -hmm. It's very funny though, because if you're, I've never seen him like coming at me luckily. It's always like me behind him. So it's really fun to like, he's swinging it right. He's swinging it left. Okay, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> you just like go for it. <laughs> so it's it's a game, but it's a very dangerous game. Um, I've seen some very interesting things out on the trails in the middle of nowhere. You know, people go a little crazy here in, uh, in the springs up on Gold Camp, mostly oh. high school kids. So Some people but, getting a little amorous out there in the woods. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I almost smacked into someone like that at uh, one of the, the trails off of Jack's, just hit a, a gap and... As soon as I landed it in the blind turn, just like, yeah, people living their life. And then probably like there's a couple that was here on vacations and they were, they had a picnic on Jack's on a blind turn, like on the trail. Ooh. And I was just hauling. Jack's is a really fast trail. It's, yeah. It's a beautiful place, but I, I mean, I almost destroyed their sandwich. It was <laughs> yeah. really, really hard. <laughs> I smacked on That's the not a euphemism, and ladies like, and gentlemen. <laughs> he might have accidentally almost destroyed his sandwich. <laughs> Yeah, and I was Can like, I you probably shouldn't be yeah. here. <laughs> Snacks. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's probably one of the weirdest ones. Mm -hmm. Not to go into much detail on the other ones. Yeah, yeah. that's probably, probably best. Mm -hmm. Probably family best. Friendly. It's a family show. Yeah, yeah. You ever run into anybody like hammocked across the trail? Yes, Jacks as well. Yes. It's yeah, that happened Jacks. to me once too. Like mm -hmm. what? Horses. What? Well, Ooh. I mean, horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah they got a right to be there. But on Jacks, that's sketchy. I mean, yeah, they do have a right. But a hammock across the trail, that's a different story. Oof. Like there is a trail here, you know this. <laughs> fishing line. Oh, have you hit some of that? Line. Um, no, but um, someone I knew hit one. I hit a trail. I believe it was Arroyo, and uh, maybe like an hour later, someone texted me and they're like, "Hey, I just hit a line on Arroyo, uh, fishing line." And I was like, "Well, I'm very lucky, but I'm sorry, because <laughs> I had just hit that." And yeah, unfortunately, people do that. Also, spikes on the floor. Um, mm -hmm. I have seen those, but usually just bunny hop picks. It's like, yeah. it just com comes at you and. Bunny hop. Thankfully, it seems like it's been a while. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood, that continues. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Please be friendly out there. Yeah. Public service announcement. <laughs> yeah. Please be nice. Yes. Please. Yes. Well, it is a true honor having you here with us. I'm, I'm so thankful we made this happen. We've been, we've been talking about it for a while. And tonight was the night. <laughs> Thank yes. you. Yeah. Yes. I, I look forward to ongoing adventures. And... I, I mean, we've had a few times on this this podcast so far where the idea of uh, mindfulness, meditation, silence, and solitude, those things come up. So maybe we'll just have to do a podcast on that at some point. Cause, we might just have ooh, to. I love, I love that stuff. I can rant for a while. That'd be cool. Yeah. But thank you, Joseph. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Sorry I put it off so much. You asked me like a while ago, and but that's when I was like really depressed. And I was like, that now is not a good time. I'm just going to like <laughs> cry and tell everyone my emotions. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'm glad we got you in the studio when we did. Thank Joseph, you. thanks so much for being on the show. Thank mm -hmm. you, guys. It's an honor. If you want to know more about stand-up pedal action, 
you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.